You are listening to The Court Leader's Advantage, a podcast series for court professionals and by court professionals. Brought to you in cooperation with NACOM, the National Association for Court Management. At one point, there was a man who walked into a courtroom and he had a business card and a video camera. And he was trying to start off a particular business and he thought he would start by videotaping a particular proceeding. The judge said no. The same judge, on the other hand, allowed an advocacy group that had a website and was affiliated with a newspaper to videotape something because they had more of a presence. Blogs and podcasts are a growing fixture on our social landscape. According to the Pew Research Center, more than two-thirds of Americans get at least some of their news from social media. There are now over 750,000 podcasts produced, and over 84 million people a week listen to a podcast. Estimates are that billions of people around the world read one or more blogs on the Internet. Now, this is a fact that courts face along with all government institutions. When grappling with a trial or some case that attracts media attention, Courts can no longer simply deal with the city newspaper and local television reporters. Bloggers and podcasters demand equal treatment with traditional media outlets. How can a court professional tell the difference between a blogger with 10,000 followers and someone with only 10? Should it matter? What most bloggers and podcasters have in common is that they want to tell a good story. But what if that story puts the court in a bad light? What advice do we have for courts that will soon be faced with this challenge? I'm Pete Kiefer, and welcome to the Court Leader Advantage podcast series. I'm joined today by Darren Toms, Public Information Officer for the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome, Darren. Hello, Pete. Thanks for having me. Also with us today is Stephen Thompson, Public Information Officer for the Sixth Judicial Circuit Court in Florida's Pasco and Pinellas Counties. Stephen, you're located in Clearwater, Florida. Thanks for speaking with us today. You're welcome, Pete. Darren, I confess that I was intrigued with the podcast Serial, hosted by Sarah Koenig, in cooperation with National Public Radio. Now, Season 3 focused on your court, the Cuyahoga County Courthouse. You were involved with allowing Sarah and the Serial podcast team to spend several months in that courthouse. Describe to us the discussions and arrangements that led up to allowing their team in. Did you lay down ground rules? And did they ever test those rules? We were contacted by Sarah and her team before they started doing uh, Serial Season 3 here in Cuyahoga County. And she came to us on the recommendation of an attorney acquaintance who said, you know, you should check things out in Cuyahoga County. And Cuyahoga County really for her was a microcosm of the Justice Center across the United States. So the things that they focused on here and looked at are the same issues faced by courts across the country. What we did have that she had not found in some other jurisdictions is that we are a very open and transparent courthouse. We have 34 judges And we allow cameras, uh, recording devices in our courtrooms as long as the judge has given permission. So the ground rules that we laid down was that they had to let the judge 
know that they were there and the cases that they were going to be following. Some judges were not as open as others. Uh, other judges said, sure, this is a public courtroom. You come in and, and do what you need to do. And they were always very gracious in their coverage. If a judge asked them to fill out a permission to record form, they did. They always came to me if there were any questions about a judge. And overall, the uh, at least from the court's point of view, uh, was positive with the folks from Serial. And once they started releasing the episodes, Sarah was gracious enough to let me know ahead of time if one of our judges would be featured on that podcast so that I could inform the judge and let them know so they weren't suddenly surprised when their phone started ringing with friends say, hey, uh, I heard you on the show today. So uh, overall, the experience of working with them was very positive. Stephen, you've had a few encounters with social media folks. Mostly they were First Amendment advocates. Can you tell us about some of those dealings? What was your biggest challenge? Well, for us, there have been essentially three classes of people outside the media who don't buy into the judicial system wholeheartedly. You have your pro se defendants who think they can represent themselves better than a public defender could. You have your sovereign citizens who believe in their own set of laws separate from the ones that generally govern everybody. Then you have your so-called First Amendment auditors who believe they can video and audio record anything that goes on in a public building paid for by taxpayers. Judges deal with pro se defendants as the pro se defendants' cases wind through the judicial system. Judges may also encounter defendants with sovereign citizen beliefs. And of course, if a sovereign citizen's actions threaten public safety, law enforcement is called. The situation with First Amendment auditors is a little different. They walk into property appraisers' offices, sheriff substations, as well as courthouses to video and audio record everything willy-nilly. But courthouses are different from these other places. A member of the public might go into the property appraiser's office to contest an appraisal. A member of the public might go into a supervisor's of elections office to straighten out their voter registration. But members of the public go into courthouses for more serious things, divorces, Maybe a relative is on trial for murder. Maybe a parent risks losing custody of their children. They go into courthouses with the expectation justice will be served. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb here when I say they don't expect to be videotaped while they are walking in the hallways. What's different, at least in Florida, between public buildings such as the tax collector's office and the courthouse is that, at least in Florida, the Florida Supreme Court has given the chief judge the authority to say, what is and what is not allowed in the public areas of a courthouse, not counting the courtrooms themselves. Through an administrative order, the chief judge can say, no, there is not to be any audio or video recording in the common areas. And if you violate this administrative order, you can be trespassed or held in contempt of court. If an administrative order is in effect and everyone, court administration as well as bailiffs, understands it and enforces it, there should be no problem. Unfortunately, we did have a situation here in May where a First Amendment auditor was allowed by bailiffs to video record the goings-on in the courthouse here. And when I told the First Amendment auditor he couldn't do so, pulling up the administrative order on my iPhone and reading the applicable parts to him, he video and audio recorded our exchange and put it on a YouTube channel called Rogue Nation. Then I got a bunch of calls, service citizen types, who told me essentially I should find another line of work. So my advice to judicial circuits out there is that the chief judge, representatives of the law enforcement agency whose job it is to keep a courthouse secure and court administration get together, agree on an administrative order, and make sure it is enforced. 
Do you know of any court in Florida that has had to take actual enforcement action against one of these individuals? I'm not aware of that. I am aware of other circuits where the sheriff's deputies right at the door see a First Amendment auditor approach with video camera in tow and just say, you're not allowed in. And that's that. Darren, returning to the serial podcast series for a minute, one aspect I became intrigued with was, and I think episode five was the example, it debunked several preconceptions that folks have about the criminal justice system, including folks within the courts. For example, one revelation was that the most powerful individual within the justice system is not the judge. It is the prosecutor. The prosecutor decides who to charge and what the charges are going to be, and deciding the charges often dictates what the sentence is going to be. Another revelation was that despite our commitment to transparency, 95% of criminal cases result in a negotiated plea. For the most part, Plea negotiations are not public. Do we as representatives of the court want this sort of story to be told? Was there a reaction to these types of revelations coming out in your court when the podcast aired? Well, Pete, as we uh, followed Serial through Season 3, there was nothing in it that really surprised us. I think it was, for the general public, a much broader view of the criminal justice system than they would have gotten otherwise. But there wasn't anything that really surprised us. And as far as I could tell, there was no real reaction to the discussion of the prosecutors. I think that's fairly well known in the legal system that uh, the prosecutors do have the power to charge and bring the cases forward. And judges role uh, in a case like this is as a referee, and they don't even have many of the details of the case uh, until the trial. I think judges do their best to trust the attorneys, uh, that they're making the best decisions that work for their clients and, of course, the victims. And judges do have the ability to discuss pleas before they go forward. But as far as the prosecutor deciding the sentence, uh, the, the charges do in many ways, decide the sentence, and the judge is bound by what the legislature has given them as far as sentencing guidelines. So oftentimes, people will say, well, why didn't the judge give them more time? Oftentimes, the case is the law does not allow for that. So I, I think the, the fact that Syria was able to give the public a better interpretation of how the courts work beyond what they see uh, just with major cases covered by the, the TV and news was good. Uh, but again, there was nothing that really came, to, uh, came as a surprise to folks in our court. Stephen, many high-profile trials these days have political implications. Are social media influencers with a political agenda different from other types? And what does that mean for courts? What we have found is that folks with a unique political agenda, say someone believes strongly in stand your ground where a person is allowed to shoot someone if they feel threatened, these people rely on whatever the standard media does, and then they sort of riff off it, often on Facebook. We haven't seen those with a political agenda covering an event on their own, maybe because they don't have the resources, separate from what the media is doing. But what they might do is look at what the media reports and disagree with it. 
they might disagree with what was accurately reported. We had a profile case uh, recently involving a man named Michael Dreka, who was eventually convicted of manslaughter for shooting a man following an altercation over a handicapped parking space. Dreka is white. The victim is African-American. The African-American had pushed Dreka to the ground and then started turning away and walking away before Dreka shot him. It had elements of stand your ground. The regular media covered but we received emails questioning the judge's ability to be fair, that kind of thing. And afterwards, a lot of folks who saw the racial implications or who thought they saw the racial implications in the case sounded off in press conferences um, deciding whether justice had been done or not. Some people thought justice had been done and some people didn't think so. Stephen, your court uses Facebook and Twitter. Now, many courts use social media, but a significant number do not. Do you think courts should be extensively using social media? And is there a downside? In Florida, there has been a push by the Florida Supreme Court through a communications plan for our 20 judicial circuits to start using social media. We started using Facebook a few years ago. So what do you post and what don't you post? We've decided not to post anything case-related. If a judge sentences someone for a particular crime, we don't post that. Why? Because it looks like the judicial system, the circuit itself, approves of the sentence somehow. And that flies in the face of us trying to appear as if we are fair and impartial. What if the conviction is appealed and overturned? How do we look then? So what do we post on Facebook? We have posts of judges speaking to students, judges winning awards for the way they conduct business in court, new grants we have won, for example, um, that provide more help for victims of domestic abuse a new pilot program involving landlord-tenant disputes. I also try not to post anything that might question how taxpayer dollars are spent. So, nothing with food. A Christmas potluck for court employees? No. A judge eating pizza with some law students? No. We're new to Twitter. We're using it and blast emails to the media when we announce dates in high-profile cases, and we are starting to use it to announce events such as veterans stand down where veterans can have their court costs waived by a judge to help them get back on their feet. But we try to be very objective when it comes to anything case-related. Now, I understand both your courts use Twitter, and Twitter is being used by an increasing number of courts nationally. What was the process that your courts went through in deciding to use Twitter? Darren? Twitter really is kind of the standard now for information, not necessarily in-depth, but for getting the word out quickly about important things. Really, it's the easiest way to inform the media and the public of things that are happening in the court, from potential closings due to an issue with the building or weather uh, to news releases. We know everyone will have quick and equal access through Twitter. As for Facebook, our court administration opted not to use it, and I don't disagree with that decision. And also, as a trial court, uh, similar to what Stephen talked about, we, we can't talk about cases, even when they're completed, because there can be an appeal process. And that makes us a lot different from the appellate level, where they may post uh, decisions on social media. So there's no case-related information, as Stephen said, on our Twitter site, but we do post news releases about grants, judges in public meeting with students, uh, events that the community can be involved in, when our specialty dockets hold graduations. You know, that's always such a, a positive thing to, to, to promote. So our, our Twitter feed is in information that 
is necessary for the public and uh, just a general view of some of the good things uh, that are happening in the court. Stephen? Well, we started off as with Facebook first to sort of see how it worked. And usually it's posts that put us in a good light. We haven't done Twitter until recently. And in, in the case of Twitter, it was agreed that it had to be very vanilla. We could do a little more than just announce that things were happening. And uh, the media likes it, but the media also asks that stuff be emailed to them because Twitter has become so popular that sometimes the tweets can get lost if they're following so many accounts. So first, Facebook, which is a little bit more labor-intensive because it involves photographs. And it also smacks of a favorable presentation as it includes photographs. When you have just text, as in Twitter, it seems like you're being more objective than you are with Facebook, in my opinion. And I'll add uh, on to what Stephen said as well about emailing the media. We do not put on Twitter that, say, a, a major verdict is coming down. If it's something news-related that I'm trying to reach out to all of the local media or those of interest at one time, uh, we still also do that by email. That's more of a personal communication between the court and the local news. Have either of you received concerns from media outlets over the timeliness of blast emails? I spoke to another public information officer who said that some media representatives felt they were not receiving the emails timely. So that's why she went exclusively with Twitter. I haven't had any issues with that in our court because I have a certain list of specific reporters that cover court news and then all of the assignment desks for the local TV and radio stations. So they all get it at the same time. And I would be worried that if I tweeted something, it might get lost in in the feed that they might not see it. So I want that that personal communication between myself and the media for things uh, important like that. And Peter, I had heard the same thing, that some PIOs go strictly with Twitter and leave the email list on the floor. But when I started tweeting, reporters would call me and say, are you still going to do the blast email, as I said, because they're, they're following so many people that there's a better chance of getting through to them with the blast email than it is with the Twitter. Blogs and podcasts are something that courts will have to deal with well into the future. Now we'll learn more about them after this short break. Hello, this is Frank Hardister from Pawpaw, Michigan. I've worked in the courts for over 22 years and throughout my career and now as a court administrator for Van Buren County Courts, I have always appreciated the unique opportunities you encounter working in the court system. A wise court administrator once told me that you are only as good as your contacts list on your phone. The National Association for Court Management, NACOM, and NACOM members are the best contacts, aka resources, to have available as a court administrator. NACOM's conferences, online resources, and network of professionals is unmatched. The NACOM community provides the opportunity to exchange ideas, learn from others' experiences, and hear about innovations trending in courts today. If you are not a member, consider joining NACOM today. You can do so by clicking the Join Us button on the NACOM website at nacomnet.org. If you are a member, I strongly encourage you to get more involved by joining a NACOM committee. Find committee descriptions and meeting schedules on NACOM's website, then simply join a committee call. 
Now we're back with Darren Toms and Stephen Thompson talking about blogs, podcasts, and courts. Now time was that if a court had a high-profile trial, representatives from the local newspaper and maybe a television station would show up. It was easy to distinguish between a legitimate representative of the media and someone who had a follower of a couple dozen. If your court has a high-profile trial, how do you two handle the question of who is a bona fide social media influencer and who is not? Darren? Well, so far, that has not been an issue in our court. Uh, If we have a high-profile trial, uh, I'll often meet with the judge ahead of time and simply ask that judge, Uh, what they would like me to do as far as media. When we do have high-profile trials, the judge will usually request a a permission to record form from the media so that they know who is in there. But again, our courts are open to the public and video and photography is allowed as long as the judge permits it. Now, if there's a really high-profile trial with a lot of media uh, interest, uh, you know, we'll go to a pool feed situation and then there's only one camera allowed uh, in the courtroom, one still photographer and one video photographer. And for high profile cases, especially those that could be somewhat controversial, I think the media really likes that because they're not elbowing for space in the courtroom and everybody has access to the exact same feed. And then if another member of the media wants the audio, they can go to uh, the area set aside for media, and everybody has, has access to the exact same thing. Stephen? Some circuits in Florida, not ours, have very successfully used media committees to decide who's legit and who's not. That is to say, representatives from the major newspapers and television stations get together, and they they decide who's going to be credentialed, who's going to be become part of the pool and who's not going to become part of the pool. If a blogger has enough of a following, they may be allowed in. We haven't done that, as I've said. And one reason is we haven't had any out of mainstream entities such as bloggers asked to cover anything. We might have the occasional request to video and audio record something by someone not affiliated with the media. And that request is put before the presiding judge who almost always rejects it. At one point, there was a man who walked into a courtroom and he had a business card and a video camera, and he was trying to start off a particular business, and he thought he would um, start by videotaping a particular proceeding. The judge said no. The same judge, on the other hand, allowed um, an advocacy group that had a website and was affiliated with a newspaper to videotape something because they had more of a presence. But in Florida, in essence, it's up to the presiding judge. Stephen, on the court side, I've recently heard the term success theater, which means to make a presentation using only cherry-picked positive stories and statistics. Are we in the courts guilty of that? I mean, should we care? Is success theater really a concern? When I started this job roughly five years ago, I was introduced to all the judges who told me some very interesting things that were going on in their courtrooms. And I asked if they wanted media coverage. And to a judge, they all said no. It's understood that it's the media's job to monitor all branches of government, report on interesting proceedings, even wrongdoings or questionable actions by judges, and ask for a response. We do put together positive press releases and Facebook posts, but they are limited. 
judges winning awards, the circuit receiving a federal grant to address a particular problem, the launch of a particular effort, that kind of thing. But I don't think it's our job necessarily to put forward things that do not put us in a positive light. Darren, on the reverse side, do you think we in the courts need to be more proactive in getting our story out to the public? And if so, how do we do that? I think courts do need to be proactive in in getting uh, good stories out to the public. We have a program called Court in the Classroom where we hold hearings in middle schools in front of eighth graders. And one of the reasons we do that is their exposure to the court system is going to be what they see on television or read about on blogs or the newspaper. And they don't realize the positive aspects that happen in a court. For instance, we have two drug courts. We have five dockets for mental health and developmental disability. We have a veterans treatment court that, of course, uh, advocates for care for people who have served in the military. Uh, We have a domestic violence uh, pilot docket that we're going to start. And I want the students to know, and the public as well, that the courts, while they can be scary, there are a lot of positive things that happen. People make mistakes. Just because somebody ends up in one of our courtrooms does not mean they're necessarily a bad person. It's that they made a mistake. They got caught up in a situation they didn't anticipate. Our judges don't necessarily want to put people in jail or send them to prison. There are people that do deserve to be in prison. Make no doubt about that. But there are people who've made mistakes that as the court, we can help them get through that. We can get them treatment for a drug addiction. We can get them education to to help them get past the mistake they've made. We can offer them sometimes a conviction uh, or, or a, a plea that if they complete the program, the conviction will be wiped from their records. Uh, we offer expungements in some cases. And those are the kind of things we want the public to know about. There are good things being done in the court, and if we don't tell that story, nobody will. The public now seems to view court proceedings, particularly high-profile trials, as entertainment. Some courts have tried to use these sorts of trials as educational opportunities for the public. Other courts want as little to do with the media as possible. Should we as court professionals resist this perspective, or should we embrace it? Darren? For us, courts are, are the, the, the trials are open to the public, so it, it, it's never entertainment. Uh, the, these are real people with real lives and, and real consequences for what's happening. And I, I think the, the public should realize that there, 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 are, there are consequences, not just for the people involved in the trial, but for their families and, and their acquaintances and, and the victims. So I don't think a trial should ever be viewed as entertainment. And, and we don't promote it as an educational opportunity either. Uh, the, the educational opportunity for us is that uh, the court system works. People are judged by a jury of their peers. And it's up to the media to decide uh, which cases they want to cover. And I'm sure Stevens had the same situation where I'm surprised that a case is getting covered because it doesn't seem like a major case to me. But there, there's a reason some cases are are chosen, and it's our job to work with the media as best we can to provide them access. Stephen? 
I agree with Darren. We shouldn't use trials as ent entertainment for the public. Again, we have to be fair and impartial. Still, Court TV or the media covers an event, and you know the judge does a spectacular job. That will resonate with the public. But that's not to say that trials become entertainment on their own. Court TV has recently reemerged. They are covering things gavel to gavel. People are watching them live, and they're entertained by it. I'm not so sure the court administration needs to get into that. I think the, um, the TV folks have that covered. Finally, what advice would you give to court administrators from around the country about how to deal with social media influencers? Do you think the courts and social media influencers can reach some sort of a positive working relationship? Stephen? I don't think court administrators should work with the so-called social media influencers. Most court proceedings, as Darren has said, are open to the public and media. If bona fide media want to cover something, we should facilitate that without the media's presence affecting the decorum of the courtroom. As for the non-traditional media, leave it to a media committee, perhaps, to decide whether they will be grouped with the mainstream media and have access to that pool video footage or that digital photography, or let the presiding judge decide whether the non-traditional media is allowed. We have to always appear fair and impartial. We have to let people in when they um, are allowed in and let the chips fall where they may. Darren? I, I agree with Stephen. It's often difficult to gauge the social media influencers from more mainstream media. But I guess my advice would be to smaller courts that don't have public information officers or community outreach coordinators. I would recommend that those presiding judges, administrative judges, court administrators reach out to the National Center for State Courts, to NACOM, to the Conference of Court Public Information Officers, and get advice from people who've dealt with it in the past. Odds are, if a situation happens in your court, it's happened to another court beforehand. And that's a good time to reach out and find out how other people have dealt with the situation so you can place your own roadmap. I want to thank both Darren and Stephen today for sharing their experiences and insights with us. Your understanding of this topic has given us much to think about. The rise of blogging and podcasting looks like it's going to be a permanent feature in our lives for years to come. Darren, thanks for chatting with us today. It was my pleasure. Stephen, thanks for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Now let's answer some listener questions. Stacy Worby, State Jury Coordinator for the Alaska Courts, wrote in two questions about our September episode on active shooter incidents in courthouses. Here to ask those questions is Stacy, and here to respond is a guest speaker from that episode, Patricia Norwood Foden from the 15th Judicial District in Chester County, Pennsylvania. Stacy, so what are your questions? Efficient, accurate communication seems like the most challenging and one of the most vital parts of employee safety during an active shooter event in the workplace. Do you have any tips for courts looking to set up a notification system for their employees? So in Chester County, we uh, looked at this specific question after our incident because there were some challenges with the communication piece and our local court security committee wanted to make sure that we 
could address the communication problem. So actually what we did was we looked at the tools that we already had in the county and to see if we can utilize those existing tools to improve our communications in the event of emergency. So what we had at the time, we had a mass notification system that employees and the public could sign up for, for just general information, like for weather alerts or for courthouse closings, those kinds of alerts. So what we actually did was we used the existing platform that we had, our mass alert system, and we found a vendor that actually was able to enhance that system with emergency notifications. So in addition to sending alerts out to somebody's smartphone or their tablets, this vendor actually integrated our emergency alert system with the voice over IP, our desktops, our digital signage that we actually have here in the courthouse that's connected to our network. And it was relatively inexpensive, you know, on the grand scheme of things, instead of bringing in and paying money for a a whole new system. I think we were able to accomplish this for under $15,000. And this vendor was able to integrate these emergency alerts. So if you're sitting at your desk now, and let's say there is an incident in the courthouse that requires you to shelter in place, not only will you get a text message on your cell phone from our mass alert system, but a message will pop up on our desktop. You will also hear an audio alert come through our speaker phones on our voice over IP phone system. And again, we just use existing tools that we had available to us and just enhanced it with just technology that was out there and readily available. So I think we've succeeded in meeting that goal after our incident of increasing our communication piece, not only with the employees, but eventually we can use that same platform to send emergency information to the public or the surrounding areas. Well, that sounds really great. Mm-hmm. So during your uh, particular active shooter event, how beneficial or detrimental was social media during that event? As I talked about it, and also Lieutenant Sibley, who also joined me on that uh, podcast episode, we did talk about the miscommunication that was happening out there. A lot of our employees were receiving Uh, notices from friends and family members on their cell phones that there's something happening. And a lot of the information that they were receiving was inaccurate. Uh, So, you know, I saw at the time that social media was a detriment because we were not controlling the message at that point. And again, that is something that we discussed at our local court security committee when we looked at the after action planning sessions. And there's always going to be that factor that's out of our control, but we make sure that we control the messages, the information that is being shared. We worked closely following our incident with our county public information officer to make sure that the messages were thorough and accurate and the county used their resources to send out information. We don't have a a formal social media platform that's just dedicated to the court system, but 
using what the county has available through our website, through the different social media uh, platforms, you know, we are controlling the information that is going out, especially if there's an emergency incident. And that is definitely something that people planning for emergency incidents should be cognizant of that, especially if there's not enough time to send emergency information out when the incident is occurring, to just realize that information is going to be flying around outside of your control. So you're going to have to really do the best that you can to find out what misinformation is floating around out there, you know, where the information is coming from. And then if you can get some kind of a more controlled formal response out there for public consumption, try to get that done, um, but have a plan ahead of time on how to accomplish that. Great. Thank you so much for answering those questions. Yeah, my pleasure. My thanks to Stacy for sending in her questions and to Tricia for responding. Remember, if you have a question about this or any episode, email us at clapodcast, that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. In most cases, we'll answer your question at the end of a future podcast. This has been the Court Leaders Advantage podcast series. Be sure to catch next month's episode on managing the multi-generational workplace. I'm Pete Keeper, and thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today. The Court Leaders Advantage is a regular podcast series on courts and court administration. Look for new episodes the third Thursday of each month. Today's podcast will be available on our website, on Facebook, on iTunes, and on Twitter. If you have questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts, email us. Our address is podcast. that's all one word, at nakamnet.org. I'm Pete Kiefer, and on behalf of our guests and the National Association for Court Management, have a great day. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individual presenters. They do not necessarily represent the position of the National Association for Court Management.